Today in the garage, we have the great Stephanie DiGiuseppe. Stephanie is a criminal lawyer who regularly represents individuals facing serious criminal charges, including homicide, charges stemming from large-scale narcotics and firearms investigations, domestic assault, and sexual assaults. She specializes in the litigation of complex cases and constitutional challenges, such as challenges to legislation, search warrants, and wiretaps. Today, through Zoom, Stephanie talked to us about police investigatory powers and the advice she gives her clients who have been charged. Whether you're driving your Sienna van, shredding your guild, or prepping a Robotham application, let's step into the garage, listen to the experts, and get it to them. Hello, Stephanie, and thank you for joining us today. Hi, Paul. I'm glad to be here. We're going to talk today about uh, pre-arrest and hopefully no arrest and the police investigatory power. And this is a very interesting part of the practice because there are times where somebody will come and visit and seek some advice and counsel from you uh, as their potential lawyer. Um, and you really have to understand what powers the police have. So I would like you to share with us your thoughts on, you know, you get a phone call at, and it's never at two o'clock in the afternoon, sometimes it's two o'clock in the morning, but you get a phone call and somebody says, I think I'm being investigated. How do you respond? Yeah, so that is always a complicated question. Uh, first thing I like to do is information gather as much as I can. So why do you think you're being investigated? Uh, tell me a little bit about um, whether you've observed, sometimes people say, oh, I think a car has been following me around, or um, I hear something weird on my phone, weird static on my phone, and so I think I'm being wiretapped. So I'd like to ask a bunch of questions and try to get a sense. Um, an important question that'll help you get a sense is if they're actively engaged in criminality, if they are, uh, that may help you to understand whether they're actually being investigated or they're um, just think they are for whatever reason. Uh, and also what kind of investigation that might be so that you can assess the situation and give appropriate advice. See, um, this is something that uh, I think can be quite difficult because there's so many different ethical challenges that may be at play. You, you've talked to an individual and you realize that uh, it's not uh, a Zoom recording that's just got bad static, but it's actually something involved uh, where uh, the information you obtain lets you know that uh, your client's being investigated, for example, for a homicide. His wife has been missing. It's been uh, several weeks. Uh, the focus is now turned on himself. Um, so I'm just curious, like, what can you tell them? What, 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 what do you say? How do you prepare them? Uh, because the police have the right to investigate. We cannot stop the police's ability to investigate. They'll try to question, and, and maybe we'll do something about that or provide some advice. If you can share with us your strategy. Sure. I mean, there's all sorts of complicated little things in this area. So um, one thing I should say about before, you know, sometimes someone calls you and they say, I'm an active drug dealer, right? Um, that's one thing. In your situation where somebody's saying my wife went missing and police are looking around, I probably am not going to want to engage in a conversation at that point about whether or not the person did it. 
it's too early in the process for us to have that kind of conversation. So we'll talk around the circumstances and I'll probably caution them not to get into too much detail with me. In a situation like that, it sounds awkward, but one of the first things I'll do is I'll make it very clear in an artificial way on the call that I am a lawyer and that the person has contacted me for the purpose of seeking legal advice because they may be under a wiretap. So police may be listening to what we're saying. And if police are following the rules properly, as soon as they hear that it's a lawyer on the other end of the line, they're supposed to stop recording or stop live monitoring that wiretap conversation. Then we get into, I think, where things get a little more tricky. So uh, I like to give people an overview of the many different ways they could be being investigated at that time. It's educating them about uh, police tactics. So if it's, um, if it's this example you've given, I'll talk to them about the idea of wiretaps, the idea of warrants, uh, the idea that police can be information gathering and speaking to other witnesses. And I think that you can also assist your client in uh, refraining from creating uh, bad evidence about themselves that does not yet exist. So you can tell them about wiretaps and caution them um, that someone may be listening to their phone calls. Uh, you can advise them that they may be under surveillance, caution them about that, but you can't go a step further and counsel them about uh, taking any active steps to obstruct justice. That's a criminal offense. You can't counsel them in any way to do that. And you can't, and you know, to add some content to that, I mean, uh, destroying evidence, hiding evidence, fleeing the jurisdiction. Um, well, I'll stop a second on that. Uh, I'll, I'll come back to that in a second, but um, all sorts of things that they could do um, or they may be thinking about doing that constitutes a criminal offense of obstructing police or obstructing justice. You have to be very careful to stay away from those things. That's a bit of a complicated one. If someone's under no condition to leave, uh, they may ask you, am I allowed to go somewhere else? And they're, you know, legally allowed to go somewhere else, but you have to be very cautious about that. That is a, um, that could be viewed down the road as a form of post-defense conduct, which the Crown could use as a So that, that's another complicated one in a complicated area. We just uh, heard a bell, so I'm, I'll move on to the next topic. It was a 30 second answer. And uh, so now let's go with the next rapid fire. Um, there is a police tactic known as stimulation if there are wiretaps active. Um, do you talk to your client about that potential? For example, they may have been brought in, warned about something, uh, said that they're investigating them in relation to a certain crime or their best friend, and they're worried that the, it's now gonna, uh, potentially uh, they're gonna be cast within that net. What do you tell clients uh, about the police uh, tactic of stimulation? Yeah, so often when people come to you, it's because a stimulation tactic is in play. So either um, when you're dealing, for example, with projects like you were talking about in the introduction, these large scale uh, narcotic or firearm investigations, sometimes uh, police will investigate a bunch of uh, or arrest a bunch of low-level street dealers in order to get everybody up the chain talking on wiretaps that they have up about what's going on. So if somebody comes to me um, 
saying there's been this small police intervention in a network that I'm close to, I do tell them about stimulation uh, techniques. And that sort of goes in line with what I think is an appropriate um, advice about not engaging in the creation of evidence that does not yet exist, uh, which is incriminatory. So you've had an opportunity to talk to your client, they've come to you, they've sought some advice, they've been following your advice, but all of a sudden an officer shows up at their door just to have a chat. Um, do you prepare your client uh, for that scenario? And if so, what would you advise them or how would you tell them how to handle that? So at this point, um, before the officer is even getting close to getting there, one of the first things you're going to want to talk to a client about in this situation is sort of like a little preview of their rights to counsel call. Right At the point of rights to counsel, you have other information like a charge and you may be uh, speaking about some other matters, but at this point you should already be cautioning uh, individuals about their right to remain silent. Uh, and that if police do come to their door, they should take contact information and refer it to counsel. So I'll have already set that up. I often advise clients to carry my business card because if they are arrested, uh, then their possessions are seized or they're not allowed to go through their cell phone. They have my phone number handy. Sometimes you get some other clients potentially who will call and say, listen, uh, I, just, I just got a call. The officer asked me if I could come down just to have a quick discussion at the police station and they're about to go. Uh, and uh, they called you just to make sure it's okay. Yeah, this can be tempting sometimes. People will tell you, um, especially when you're a young lawyer, people will tell you, I'm innocent, I'm innocent. And if I just explain it to the police, the police are going to believe me and I'm not going to get arrested. I have never seen a situation where that was the case. If police are knocking on the door and they want to talk to your client, uh, very good chance that uh, your client is already imminently going to be arrested or arrestable and they're trying to get a statement from them. So the advice is always no. Um, how about one little thing, sorry. Sometimes helpful to explain to clients that uh, nothing they say that is exculpatory can be used in their favor at their trial, but any little tiny thing they say that helps the police can be used against them. And sometimes explaining that distinction can help persuade them uh, to follow your advice. They, uh, this time the police say, listen, we know you're innocent. We just have this little process. It's, it's a truth verification process. We have these lie detectors. You'll help us with the investigation. And of course, you're not a sus suspect. We just want to talk to you. Come on down for a, a quick uh, 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 lie detector test. Lie detectors are inadmissible at court. They have no court function. Even if you pass one, you can't uh, use it in your defense. So it's provides no value to you. It is certainly a technique being used by the police to try to stimulate you into conversation so that they can find evidence against you or evidence that you don't even realize at this point helps their investigation. And that's really important for clients to understand. Uh, it's not just the big confession that police are looking for. Sometimes they are looking for seemingly mundane little pieces of information that the Crown can later use to corroborate the case against, against your client. So that's a no-no as well. So if I can just recap, somebody calls you, tell you, indicates to you that they're being investigated, they take your advice, they then get a call, inviting them down, 
to the police station, they don't go. They then get invited for you know this truth verification, and they resist. Uh, but now this time, uh, the officer is about to uh, show up at their door and ask them to come down to the station because uh, they're under arrest. Um, in any of the prior uh, scenarios, would you reach out to the police officer? I certainly have. It's pretty context dependent and it really depends on how much the police are already involved. If someone's calling me with just a suspicion they're under surveillance, I'm not going to do that because that if they're my client's not under surveillance, I'm alerting the police to the fact that my client may be of interest. Uh, but in the example that you've given, I, I often would and I would uh, launch into what I sometimes call a negotiated surrender, which means that my client doesn't have that surprise knock on the door where they get arrested. Uh, but we make an arrangement uh, that they go into the station, they turn themselves in, usually very early in the morning, with the objective that they uh, avoid spending a night in custody, they can be taken for bail the same day. And I'm already talking to my client at that point about lining up sureties. In fact, that's a conversation I have pretty early with my client. Um, you know, I say, just in case you're right, let's talk about who can bail you out if uh, you do get that knock at the door. So the officer has reasonable probable grounds. They want to arrest your client. Uh, you've had an opportunity to speak to them. You negotiate the surrender. Um, have you in your experience uh, in these the, when your client needs to surrender, have you been able to uh, uh, been able to uh, surrender your client on your schedule as opposed to the police schedule? I have a couple times, never for a homicide, so it wouldn't fit into your example. Um, but uh, definitely for some smaller kinds of charges, um, I have been able to do that. And I've also had situations where the police, you know, uh, don't give that idea the time of day, and they arrest whenever they want. You surrendered your client or your client or the person who's consulted with you has not taken your advice and it's now at the police station about to be booked. They say that they want to call counsel. Um, how does that unfold? What do you do and what advice do you provide? Right. So I'm going to be giving more advice at this point, though I may have, especially with serious charges, already covered some of this in case my client is arrested and not given his right to counsel, um, which does happen rarely with serious charges, but does. Um, but I'm going to start covering some other things that have to do with arrest. So things like the fact that you may um, have body samples taken, depending on the context, uh, the idea that you may, you're going to be photographed, that your possessions may be, are going to be seized, and that you don't want to consent to any of those things. You don't want to resist. The police are allowed to take them, but you don't want to give active consent to any of those things. I talk about other investigatory steps that can happen once you're in custody. So things like, um, a, so this is for serious charges, a probe in your cell. You're not going to get that for a little one. Um, I talk about undercover officers who may be present in a bullpen, who may be present um, uh, in sort of uh, common areas when you're in custody at the station. And I also talk a little bit about um, guys at jail who might ask you a bit about your charges and try to use that for leverage on their own charges with the police. So rats in sort of common parlance. Uh, and I warn a bit about that. So I'm saying you're not only not talking to the police, you're not talking to 
anyone except me from this point forward about what happened. And I, I give that advice actually earlier about third parties as well. So I say it's not only the police you need to worry about, but you also have to worry about people close to you being interviewed. So you should be talking to no one about this situation. Uh, then there's the police interview itself. I like to go over tactics that I see police use over and over again in an interview context uh, so that my client knows what to expect. So I tell them, I can't go through all of them, uh, but I tell them that the police can lie to them, that they can lie to them about the strength of the case against them. Uh, and I advise them to uh, just answer all questions by saying I'm staying silent on the advice of my lawyer and that the interview will that will not end it, but that will make it much shorter than if they start engaging in banter or small talk or any form of conversation. When the uh, police are questioning your client, um, is there ever an opportunity where you'll want to call back in, where your client's taking your advice, but for example, the processing hasn't occurred on a timely basis. For example, if they were going to be released from the station and an hour or two goes by, now you're getting fearful. Do you call back in? Yeah, I mean, I've not had that happen very often, um, but I certainly would call back in. I, you know, I've had times when I expected someone at bail court in the morning and they're not there, and so I call again. Okay. Your clients uh, have, uh, of course, wanted to listen, um, and uh, you have those that actually do listen because you were able to convey that message. If I were your client, what would be that message? How would you convey it to me, uh, if you wouldn't mind sharing that with our audience? Because everybody's got their own unique way. Uh, uh, they may use different analogies, or they may give different examples, or they try to stress it in such a way that the client really it sinks in because people are terrified at this point in time and it's tough to give uh, advice. I'm sure. Yeah. It's hard for me to say that I have a standard way that I, that I do that because it really depends on the level of sophistication of the client and um, the circumstances. So with a more sophisticated client, I would be going through all of the things that I just mentioned and I would be telling them, um, if you feel confused, if you feel in the room like things are changing, you can't remember my advice, ask to call me again. You may not be able to, but you should try. Uh, with a less sophisticated client, I may just be focusing on one thing. You answer all questions by saying, um, I'm staying silent on the advice of my lawyer, and you call me as soon as you get a phone. And that may be, uh, that may be the most important thing to get through to a client. Uh, always I'm saying, you know, these are not your friends. They are not going to drop your charges at this point. There is nothing that you are going to say that's going to convince them to do something different. Uh, I am, you know, completely here looking out for your best interest and just follow this advice. And I may be, you know, depending on who the client is and their age, I may be saying that in a less formal way. You, you really want to connect on this advice. That's the most important thing. So it should be geared to who the client is. Do you ever give any advice uh, to them about uh, pretending they're asleep or, uh, uh, you know, uh, begging to go back to a cell or anything? One, 
One of my clients I was most proud of pretended he was asleep. I can't say that I gave him that suggestion, but he withstood three hours of um, very tough uh, interview by pretending to be asleep. Um, no, I, I tell them to be polite and courteous, but to stay silent throughout. And I tell them to voice any concerns that they have very clearly. So if they feel like circumstances have changed and want to talk to me, to say that very clearly. If they're hungry, if they're thirsty, if they're tired, if they don't feel well, uh, to say that very clearly. And I tell them it's all being recorded and it's important that you, if you feel threatened, if you feel um, uncomfortable, say all of that very clearly. I'm sure that in your years of practice, when you've ended up uh, being properly retained on a substantive charge, uh, you do get a copy of the disclosure and you do see this recording. Um, is there anything that you've seen that is shocking to you or, or, or different tactics the police will use uh, to continue to try to engage the client to talk? The right to science belongs to them. And uh, sometimes police try to, not necessarily undermine it, necessarily undermine it, absolutely undermine it. Uh, they'll continue to talk and, and, and I've seen a lot of interesting things and I, I'm sure you have too. Uh, is there anything you'd like uh, the general uh, audience, young lawyers uh, to be aware of? Yeah, I mean, I think some of the most shocking ones um, are often uh, so denigrating the advice of counsel. That's what we kind of call it in the case law. But when they're, uh, the lawyer actively tries to get between you and your client and say your client, your, your lawyer doesn't understand what's going on. She's not trying to help you. Uh, that, is, that is a good one to be aware of. Um, situations where uh, you'll have the police officer lie to the client about either the evidence against them, which I've seen, very blatant lies, making the case seem stronger than it is, but also about the legal process. So saying things like, the jury will know you didn't have an excuse and they'll use it against you, quite clearly, which is not true. Uh, so that's why I do try to um, forecast as best as I can for my clients what those, those kinds of tactics. The one that I think is most, the police get the most results with, uh, from what I've seen, is the banter, small talk engagement. Okay, we don't need to talk about the case. Tell me a bit about this or that. Or, oh, I just want to fill out this form that's going to help you get bail, but we need to know some personal details about you. And then they start filling out that form and get the client used to answering questions. And then they just roll that right into important questions about the investigation. Those are all tactics. None of them are designed to help the client. They're all just ways to get the client talking. Have you seen the employment of the re-technique uh, continuing in Canada or in investigations or, or cases that you've been involved with? Yeah, I saw, um, I had a, the last time I saw the re-technique was a homicide in 2014. I mean, that's recent enough. It's, you know, it's not been specifically disavowed by our courts, though there's a lot of commentary suggesting that it's not a good practice and that it can lead to a uh, finding that the statement was involuntary. I think it would be nice if the courts would set down a hard and fast rule about it. All the data supports that it's responsible for false confessions in great number. Your clients have uh, listened to you. They come to the station because they were surrendered by yourself. 
they withstood the questioning, provided no statements, uh, and now uh, you've been able to obtain bail for them. They indicate to you that it is absolute misunderstanding and that if the police had investigated uh, this charge properly or this, this matter properly, they would know it's not them. So they're asking you now, would you engage? Can you help? Can we get a private investigator? What can we do to try to marshal some evidence that will help vindicate myself as your client? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so you've already hinted there. The best practice is to hire a private investigator. Um, I have sometimes had, uh, you're not going to want to do any investigation yourself. If you make yourself a witness to anything, even a small statement by a witness, and that later becomes contested at trial, uh, you then can become conflicted. You're now a witness for your client and you can no longer be your client's counsel. So you're always gonna want to contract that out essentially under, underneath the uh, solicitor-client relationship to a third party. Private investigators are great. I've also used a, you know, a law clerk from another office or a paralegal from another office in a smaller case uh, where it's just one or two interviews. Preserving evidence close in time to the charge in circumstances like you've described, I think is an important part of our job. And though it has to be done carefully, you absolutely must do it you're in great danger of compromising your client's defense and um, in terms of your own professional and ethical duties if you fail to do that when your clients asked you to. So according to what I understand the law to be, there is no uh, property in a witness and a complainant is a witness. And there are times where a complainant may approach you as counsel for the accused individual. Um, I know that there, when I was a younger lawyer, there was a hard and fast rule. Don't you dare speak to a complainant. It's wrong. But I'm not sure if you're completely protecting your client. Is there a happy median that can be followed to ensure that you're protecting the rights of your client? Getting information, for example, if it was a false report against your client, um, what should you do? How should you handle it? Uh, what is what are the ethical traps that you have to worry about uh, to ensure that you do your job right? Yeah, I think um, I think this is a very difficult area uh, for all of us, not just counsel who are just starting out. So let's think about it just um, practically. The danger what the danger of not speaking to this person or sending this person elsewhere is that you lose potentially a recantation or um, an admission that the report against your client was false in some other way or something of that nature. Um, the problem is that you're in great danger of becoming a witness in your client's case. Complainants, complainants notoriously go back and forth, right? And so if you take a statement and then uh, the client or the complainant switches again what they're saying, you're in great danger of being a witness. Uh, you're also in quite a bit of danger in other ways as well. I uh, This didn't happen to me, but happened to a friend of mine who took a statement in that way very carefully, completely um, all contact with the complainant was video recorded. Uh, and still the complainant later on alleged that the lawyer had um, pressured her unduly to make a recantation once she was sort of, once the complainant was sort of under fire for making a false statement to police. And so these are 
in these situations, I think it is best to be careful. The best practice is to uh, speak to the complainant through the complainant's counsel. So the complainant's own counsel, and that's maybe the only way that we're in luck that complainants are getting counsel more and more now and are getting counsel through legal aid. That makes it a lot easier. So they can retain their own counsel, they can get state funding for that, and conversations can happen that way. The downside is that their counsel will advise them about the dangers of making a recantation and you may lose that evidence. So it is a very hard area. I wanna cover some other areas that are involved uh, during a police investigation and sort of in a rapid fire way, ask you what kind of advice you'd provide to the client. Okay. Uh, get a call, uh, there's a knock at the door and the police are uh, there in hand with a search warrant. And uh, you get a call, client's not under arrest, but their home is about to be searched. Any advice that you provide to them over the phone quickly? Sometimes ask to speak with the officer to get some information. Um, but I would say you have to be compliant, don't consent to anything, and your right to remain silent continues during the search, answer no questions. How about uh, you get a call, uh, client is driving home, gives you a very quick shout and says, my God, my child has been stopped by the police. Um, I, I, I'm here, I can see them. And they've taken everything out of the vehicle from the seats of the car to the everything in the trunk of the vehicle. They're searching. What can you do? What advice would you give? I think there's a great opportunity to suggest that they videotape it. Uh, could be very helpful down the line. Um, if the child's under 18, I would suggest that the parent intervene because youth have a right to a parent representative uh, when they're dealing with the police. And, um, well, I don't know if there's that much else off the top of my head that a parent can do in those circumstances. They certainly can't obstruct. You get a call from a client who says, uh, one of my employees, uh, the police uh, have sent me this thing in the mail called the production order. What am I supposed to do? <laughs> um, that's interesting. I actually, I've actually represented corporations before when they're served with a production order. I mean, you have to comply with a production order. I would suggest getting counsel to review the order if you don't want to comply with it to see if there's any basis by which it can be quashed. Uh, the police uh, have uh, just told your client, uh, just wait there, you're at the scene of uh, uh, an alleged crime, uh, they're at a scene of alleged crime, and they say, hold on, we're just going to put you up against the wall and stand there beside these five other individuals. And uh, any suggestion for identification lineups? I wish I had something brilliant there. Um, you. Again, I would be saying don't answer questions, but I don't think I don't think that you can go further and and sort of suggest anything else. There's um, if they're if they're legally detained. Okay, if they're not legally detained, we're all telling them hit the road. You don't have to stay. Yeah, exactly. The example that I just wanted to throw out was uh, I know that in cases of where there's a question of identification. In the past, uh, crowns have asked police officers to walk the uh, the complainant or a witness down the hall without a, a, us as defense counsel knowing um, to try to see if the witness can pick your client out as the perpetrator. 
as opposed to in-dock identification, it becomes uh, identification in a hallway. Oh, today I saw that individual would be the evidence and, and I, that sparked a memory. It wasn't the only person in the courtroom. There was a room of 50 people sitting outside and I was able to identify that individual. Yeah, I mean, I, I've never had that situation and I don't know if I have any advice about it. I mean, I don't, I, I don't usually let have my client hanging out outside the courtroom anyways, because it's just a place to come into contact with all sorts of people that they probably shouldn't. So usually my clients go and take a break and come right at the beginning of court which hopefully is why I've never run into that problem before. Any wonderful war stories that you'd like to share about advice or, or, or let's, how can I put this so that you're not disclosing anything uh, uh, and, and violating uh, solicitor client privilege? Any scenarios that you found to be interesting or war stories you've heard in practice from other lawyers uh, involving police investigatory uh, techniques uh, that uh, have been able to, uh, been, where somebody's been able to provide good advice to them, to your client? The first thing that popped in my head was sort of the opposite. I had a um, homicide I did where the, uh, my, my client was on scene uh, at a shooting. He was the only person found on scene. He was taken to the station, not provided with rights to counsel and treated the whole time as if he was just a witness to the shooting. They took uh, bodily samples, they took GSR off his hands, they took photographs of his clothing. While they were doing this, they were executing a search warrant inside the house. This happened at the, in the garage. Uh, they then released him from the station. He was under active surveillance from that point onward for almost two weeks. They uh, saw him return to a place where he had disposed of what was allegedly the murder weapon. And all. so I, I, the amazing amount of evidence that the police were able to get because they did not give this one individual rights to counsel at the beginning of a statement, um, and just the way that it snowballed to account for almost the entire case against him stemmed from that, I think really drove home to me how important it is um, to do these phone calls. He wasn't given the opportunity, but to do these phone calls properly and to advise clients of all the ways that they can uh, incriminate themselves moving forward from that point, not just in that room, uh, can be the, you know, um, can make a huge difference for your client and their circumstances. I think that's the main story that comes to my head. It's not quite as funny as my client who, uh, after falling asleep on the desk, quote unquote, during questioning, actually crawled underneath the table in the fetal position and remained there for the remaining two hours of the interview while the police continued to plummet questions at him one by one. Um, but, you know, I kind of wish the first, the first example had done what the second example did. So um, th th those are two that come to mind when you ask the question. It's always surprising the advice you give and sometimes the tactics used may usurp uh, the client's right to silence and you'll have to deal with it. But hopefully clients do uh, listen to you as their lawyer. What advice would you give in general to young lawyers who are about to start practice? Um, if they're consulted, um, what, what, what four or five things would you recommend that they always keep at top of mind? Just generally or about this area? Mm -hmm. Oh, I think some of the most important things are um, 
you're there in service to your client, listen to your client, act as if your client is telling you the truth. Don't, don't be uncritical with them, but give them the benefit of the doubt because somebody has to uh, and explore the case that way. And um, oh, take a lot of notes <laughs> as you're going through a file. Uh, take a lot of notes about what you do and a lot of memos because um, those things can be very important down the road. Stephanie, thank you for your time today. Um, one of the things that we ask all uh, people that are on our videocast podcast is let us know where we can find you. Let us know where the audience could find you. Sure. I mean, um, I work at Ruby Schiller and Najor Giuseppe. I'm on Twitter. I have a, a pretty active Twitter account, which is S Giuseppe Law. And I almost didn't remember that for a second. Um, and I'm also a director of an organization called Cannabis Amnesty that works towards uh, works towards justice reform in the legal cannabis space. And those are those are a couple of things that I do. Thank you for all your good work that you do for our community, uh, for being a mentor, for standing up and arguing for many many individuals. Uh, your reputation precedes you. Great to have you today here in the garage, and I want to thank you again. My pleasure. I'm really happy to have been here. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. A shout out to our fantastic producers, Xenia Sethna and Jason Cooper. For more free legal education and to check out what we've been doing for the past 10 years, go to thelawgarage.com. That is thelawgarage.com.